actually, not, on a, not on a, only on a Friday night, uh, when you can be doing lots of other things, but a Friday night during a tornado warning <laughs> and during exam week. So I know I talked to one of you as an exam tomorrow. And so the fact that like any of you are out here is really a, an honor. So thank you for, thank you for being here. Um, as Austin said, I'm Warren Kinghorn. I'm a psychiatrist. I actually uh, practice within the VA system. I uh, work in the Durham VA, and I teach at Duke Divinity School and in the medical school at Duke, and uh, co-direct uh, something called the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative. And um, I'll make a little plug for what we do and, uh, before, uh, before getting onto our topic for tonight. Uh, we exist as this initiative within, this, within Duke Divinity School, which is a Christian seminary in the middle of, the re of a research university. And we exist to connect the world of healthcare and the world of Christian faith. And so we have a couple of programs. Uh, one of which is really specifically uh, for folks that are either uh, finishing undergrad or in health profession training programs or maybe early career clinicians. We, are, uh, we call it our Theology, Medicine, and Culture Fellowship. And students can come and can take some time uh, away from clinical training or before clinical training study full-time uh, at the Divinity School with a cohort of other folks in healthcare, and uh, study things like the history of the church's relationship to healthcare and Christian bioethics and like uh, what does scripture say about health and healing and uh, how do we think about um, uh, missions and, and other things. And to do that in, in uh, the conversation context of study and of uh, learning uh, spiritual practices and having a lot of conversation, and then also working in the Durham community and various different um, nonprofits and ministries. And uh, those who have gone through and re uh, report that it really kind of changes their approach to the work of healthcare. So if any of you are in that situation and you are like, you know, thinking about a career in healthcare or health-related vocation, uh, or uh, that's a possibility and you're interested in studying with us, then I'd love to be in conversation with you about that. And there's some flyers somewhere that you can pick up in the back, and uh, I think there's a sheet that just went around. So um, it's all to say, uh, if any of you are interested in what I talk about tonight or what we're doing, I'd love to be in, in further conversation with you. Tonight, uh, I think the title, and I would also want to say I'm so sorry that Mary Margaret couldn't be here tonight, and I'm so grateful to her, and so glad that you were able to watch wherever you are, Mary Margaret. So, so thank you for making this happen and for uh, gathering us tonight. Uh, the title, I think, of our time is The Conversation on Faith, Mental Health, and Medication. And any two of those three would be complicated enough, but to bring all three in is, is a challenge. Um, I want to emphasize the conversation part. So I'm going to start out by offering a few thoughts from my perspective as a psychiatrist who's also a Christian and also is thinking about, like, what, is, what does Christianity have to offer to these conversations about mental health and faith and medication. I'm going to talk more about mental health and then I hope we'll be able to talk more specifically about medication in the, in the conversation that follows. So the way it's going to work is I'm going to uh, talk for, I don't know, a half hour or so, something like that, around just some ideas to kind of put some ideas on the table. And then I really look forward to being down here and just in conversation together about these topics. Um, the first, I think, thing that I want to emphasize, and just to talk about is that like, men mental health problems, and I'll use that interchangeably with mental illness, it are just a very present reality. Um, how many of you here are uh, associated with, a, with a, either Wake or a different college or university in the area in some, in some way? So about half. And, um, and how, many of you are, how many of you know people who are right now like living with depression or anxiety 
or um, bipolar disorder, or other, almost everybody's reasoning depends exactly. And, that, and that's the case with every community. It's the case with every educational community. It's the case with every congregation, including Salem Press and including Black Mountain Presbyterian, where I worship in Durham. It's the case everywhere. And I think that if, if you're in the middle of, um, of struggling, or someone you know is struggling, I think then the, the most basic things that I want to communicate are the things that are here on this slide. Don't give up. You're not alone. You matter. There's help for you. And I don't want anything else that I say tonight to like, get in the way of that most basic affirmation. Um, I'm, I'm not going to show many uh, like data slides tonight because that's not why I'm here. But just to, uh, just to kind of make the point that mental health challenges are incredibly common. If you're struggling or someone else you know is struggling and you think that you're alone, you're not alone. So this is a, you know, it's a little hard to see these slides, so I'll, I'll um, communicate about them. This shows that uh, at any given time, or over the past year, about 7% of American adults will have um, met uh, the criteria for a major depressive episode, which is not just feeling sad, it's like having a number of different uh, things happen, like persistent feelings of sadness that we're not able to, uh, to, to like increase or decrease appetite or excessive sleep or inability to sleep or uh, thoughts of suicide. Uh, and this is something that, again, in any given year, about 1 in 15 or so of us will experience this. And over the course of our lives, about 1 in 4 or 5 of us will experience a major depressive episode. If you look at um, the prevalence over the past year of, uh, of adults that have met the criteria for some form of, of mental disorder, as psychiatry defines that, it's about one in five uh, American adults, so about 22% uh, of women, about 15% of men. Um, a lot of you are probably in, the, in your you know, 20s, early 30s, and uh, actually the prevalence of mental health challenges is the highest among adults in their 20s. And so, um, so a lot of you are kind of right in the middle of, of a group that, like, you know, it's, it's really common to, to struggle. Um, there's a, uh, for those of you that are in some form of, in, in a college or university setting, uh, and I teach at Duke, and so I'm thinking about this a lot, there's a survey that uh, is done twice a year called the American College Health Assessment. Um, they asked a number of questions, and they asked, they asked the same questions from 2009 to 2019. Then they changed the questions right before the pandemic, which is not very helpful, but, uh, but, but you can actually look at like, how people responded. It's just like a nationally representative uh, survey of college and university students. How people responded to certain questions that have to do with mental health. And I just thought it would be helpful to show what college and university students say. When students are asked, have you ever felt very lonely? Uh, and you look at over the last 12 months. Um, in 2019, 68% of women and 58% of men said yes to that question. You can see that increased a little bit from about 2012 to 2019. Here's another question. Have you ever felt very sad? And in the last 12 months, 75% of women and 61% of men say yes to that question. You can see there does seem to be kind of a increase in the numbers of people who respond over the last six or seven years. This is all before the pandemic. Have you ever felt overwhelming anxiety and, uh, in the last 12 months? And you can see here that in 2009, it was about 53% of women and 36% of men. 
said yes to that. By 2019, it was 72% of women and 51% of men. Right. Another question, uh, have you ever felt so depressed that it was difficult to function? So in 2009, about 30% uh, or so of students were saying yes to that question. And by 2019, 48% of women, 37% of men were saying yes to that question. Here's the one that I think is maybe most alarming to me. The question, have you ever seriously considered suicide? And in 2009 to 2011, about 6%, which is already a pretty high number, that's like one in you know, 16 or 17 people was saying yes to that question. But by 2019, those numbers had doubled to about 12%, both men and women were saying yes to that question. And I do want to pause and just say that um, you know everything that we talk about tonight about mental health is not just about like people out there, but it's like us in this room, and uh, we ourselves live and, and struggle and, and um, try to figure things out with regard to mental health. And I just want to say, if if tonight you are thinking of suicide or if that's something that's a part of your life, um, you know the most important thing that you can do is to get help. And there's, um, there's local folks here who want to help you. We can talk about that either now or later. There's the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. That's 1-800-273-TALK. There's a crisis text line that's 741741. You can text at any time and somebody can get through. There, there are people who want to help. And I just want to make sure to say that um, uh, whenever we talk about these, these matters. A couple other slides, and I'm done with data stuff. Here's, Here's, a, here's another interesting slide, just two slides that has to do with like the question, have you been diagnosed or treated by a professional for anxiety within the last 12 months? And you can see here, there's actually a pretty significant uptrend in those that have sought care for anxiety in the last 12 months. More among women than men, but higher among both. And you see the same for, have you been diagnosed or treated by a professional for depression in the last 12 months? And, uh, and so you can see an increase there. I do just want to pause and ask, like, there does seem to be, like, uh, oh, this room is amazing, the sun comes out of the windows. Um, there does seem to be an increase from about 2012 and 13 to 2019. I'll tell you that even though we can't use this, this survey during the pandemic because they didn't ask the same questions, it, it looks like things, things actually haven't gotten, like, dramatically worse with respect to mental health outcomes among at least college students during the pandemic, but they've gotten somewhat worse, and we can, I want to talk more about how the pandemic has like, just added so much increased stress for everybody in lots of different ways. But even before the pandemic, do you guys have any thoughts about what might be happening, or like what, like, why might that be the case, that, um, that these, these trends, especially with regard to depression and anxiety and thoughts of suicide, might be increasing among um, college university students? Anybody have any thoughts about it? Why that might be? I'll tell you. There's no. There's no absolutely known conclusive answer. There's lots of thoughts. Yeah. Um, I think I would say smartphones and sort of isolation and not like wanting to connect, but doing that on the street rather than person. Yeah. That's a lot of people wonder about smartphones, and not just about smartphones, but about social, how social media, how people connect and don't connect on social media. Um, Jean Twingy is a, like a generation researcher, and she points out that 2012 was the first year of like universal smartphone adoption among adolescents. Like, you, there's like some saturation point where everybody had a phone, and uh, and since then, like it's it's made a difference. But that probably it's probably not the only thing, but that probably is a contributor to um, people being less like physically connected to each other and 
And then we all know that like social media, like people put, tend to put parts of themselves that they want other people to see, which leads to all kinds of comparisons to others you know, on, on social media. Um, any other ideas about what might, might happen? Yeah. I just wonder if it's a, not just, but has, to, has, has something to do with generation change that millennials, we were told, I believe the children are our future. Like, I think I came into college thinking the world was my oyster. And I don't think that people who started college in 2014 were hearing the same message. Yeah, people wonder about that. Like, you know, a generation after the economic crisis, when there's not the kind of um, expectations of security economically, and um, that's, that's, that, is, that is one thing that people wonder about. Fracturing and also just polar, polarization, but, but which and and lack of trust, like lack of social trust and lack of people being uh, willing to trust themselves with each other. And then you know, 2000, I think 2012 was the year that Trayvon Martin was killed and uh, and Michael Brown, and uh, there began to be like an increasing awareness of um, racial violence and awareness of racism. Me Too was happening about what 2014, 15, 16. Lots of increasing awareness of like of um, prevalence of trauma in our culture, but also just like it's been kind of front and center. Not 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 new, but um, certainly um, we live in a really difficult time. It's a really challenging time for our country, for our culture, for our communities, and so probably all these things are playing a role. There's probably other things too um, playing a role in, in like how we're struggling and why we're struggling. So back to the. Back to the core messages. You know, uh, I think the central thing that I want to say is don't give up. You're not alone. You matter. And that's something that we can say to each other. I'm going to say that you know, a few different times over the course of the, of the evening. But I do want to ask questions about like, when we start to engage in mental health care. By the way, one thing that's clear is that there's, lower, there's like less stigma against seeking counseling and therapy in mental health care. And as a psychiatrist, I would see that as a really good thing. And with that, as a Christian and as a psychiatrist, I want to ask, like, how are we, how are we understanding ourselves when we enter into like mental health care settings? And this gets to the questions of like what I do as a psychiatrist. There's an interesting book that is not a not a theological book. It's done by a sociologist um, at UVA, Joseph Davis. Uh, the title of the book is Chemically Imbalanced. I know you can't quite see that well, but uh, Joseph Davis is a sociologist too. Who put ads in, news, in like newspapers and social media platforms and interviewed a bunch of mostly young adults um, in several different metro areas, Charlottesville and DC and a couple others, and basically did and, and said basically, um, are, are you um, do you identify as having depression or anxiety or a few other mental health problems? And can we, would you just talk about your experience? And he found that um, that there were some people who he interviewed who really like tried to put their their experience in the kind of language of a story, and he called them like psychologically minded. And there were others who tended to see their experience as very much like part of something happening in their brains or in their bodies. So here's one one respondent who he names Piper, who says, "I'd say more like you just have a condition, like a slight something is a little off, 
you have a gene that's a little messed up, that's maybe not functioning as well as other people's are. I think of it more as some people have blue eyes, and some people have green eyes, and some people have brown eyes, and some people have too much of certain chemicals, some people have too little, some people have perfect, and I'm just, I think I just have too little or too much of whatever it is that makes you have these issues. This is like a, you know, this is a very common like, way of thinking, and, 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 uh, and what Davidson's doing is he's, he's basically saying, like, what's the effect on the way we understand ourselves if we understand ourselves as like people who have just too much or too little of a certain chemical or certain genes or others. And this is the contrast that I want to offer tonight. And I want to make clear, this is not, I'm going to argue for one over the other, but I don't, I do think there's a space for both. Um, but it's the contrast between understanding ourselves as machines, um, our bodies as machines that can break and need to be fixed, and on the contrary, understanding ourselves as those on a journey, or as wayfarers. And I'm pretty partial to the image of the human as wayfarer. I think it, it's actually a really powerful way to make sense of like how we engage, how we think about our experience, how we engage each other, how we engage in mental health care, how we take medication. Um, and I think the image of the machine is kind of limited, but I do think it can be useful in some, in some cases. So what I want to do is just, just kind of set up these two different images of the machine and of the wayfarer, and then say a few things about those from a, a Christian perspective, and then open up the conversation. So first, and uh, here's here's a um, here's about as, as theoretical as I'll get in these next couple of slides. I want to argue that in some cases, psychiatrists like me can uh, can kind of depict what's wrong when people are struggling with depression or anxiety or forms of mental illness is that something's broken. But I think there's some limitations to this. And so I want to show a couple of um, like older drug ads that are not the kind of things you see right now because they're not, you know, they're older medications. But uh, I think can illustrate some of the problems of like thinking of human beings and human bodies as machines that are broken. So here's one ad from um, about 1969 or so, and uh, I know you I know you can't see the, the text, so I'm going to read that to you, and I'll make it a little bit bigger here. Um, uh, but you see the bold, the bold text says, you can't set her free, but you can help her feel less anxious. What do you see in this image, on the in this drug ad? This is for uh, benzodiazepine, like an anxiety-reducing medication. She's like a cell. A cell, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. Trapped by domestic duties. Yeah, so so uh, this it's a young white woman. Um, it's it very interesting if you look at like pharmaceutical ads for um, medications for depression and anxiety. It's often young white women that are that are depicted. In this case, the young woman here is um, is like looking not happy, looking pretty anxious, and she looks like she's in prison there's prison bars, but what are the what are the bars of the prison that she's in? Household duties. Yeah, like there's a broom, there's a mop, there's a, there's some other there's a tricycle behind her, there's an iron here. Um, so it's interesting. The picture shows her imprisoned by like household implements, like household cleaning uh, clean uh, uh, instruments. So let me just read you what's, what the text is here. This is written to like mostly, at this point, almost entirely male physicians who are prescribing medications. Um, the text says, you know this woman. She's anxious, tense, irritable. She's felt this way for months. 
Beset by the seemingly insurmountable problems of raising a young family, confined to the home most of the time, her symptoms reflect a sense of inadequacy and isolation. Your reassurance and guidance may have helped some, but not enough. Syrax, oxazepam, cannot change your environment, of course, but it can help relieve anxiety, tension, agitation, irritability, thus strengthening her ability to cope with day-to-day -day problems. That's what the text is that you can't, that you can't read. That's what, that's what it says. So does anybody have thoughts about that approach? Like, anybody have questions about this app? Seems interesting facial expressions out there. Yeah. It seems condescending. It seems kind of condescending, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. It's basically saying her anxiety is just because of her circumstances. Yeah, well it says, it, 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 at least it says because of her circumstances, and then it says, but you can't change the circumstances. Yeah. So, so because the circumstance, because it's just symptoms that need to be like, you know, you can, you can help to quell them, but you, but you can't change your environment, of course, that's right. Actually, I'm impressed by the way it distinguishes between the external and the internal. I think that's useful. Yeah, yeah, like at least, it's, at least it says, like it makes clear that what's happening is related to her social, social situation and environment. Yeah, yeah, is that what you meant by that? Yeah, right. Good. Yeah. It's also super provider-centric. Uh, it doesn't really bring her into it, even though it's about her. It's very provider-centric, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. That's right, that's right, yeah, exactly, yeah. And the idea is like that the psychiatrist's wise words have not broken through and so medication is needed. I'd say this is an example of what you often see in um, pharmaceuticals especially, which is that the assumption that uh, mental problems are something inside us, that's what I mean by, um, by internalism, and that they're like something that fundamentally are ours as individuals, they're like individual problems. So if I'm depressed or I'm anxious, it's like my problem um, that's somehow inside me. And this is something that like, you know, may not necessarily be the best way to think about some of these things. And, and so, but it is that like there's, she has experiences that are inside her that need to be, uh, for which she needs a medication. Um, so here's, here's another, here's another um, drug ad that illustrates a, another uh, aspect of what I call the machine metaphor which is to split symptoms apart from the self. Uh, so what do you see, I think this is the last ad I'll show, what do you see in this, in this image? It's a little more recent, from like the, about 2003 or 2004, for medication that's still very widely used. Um, and it tells a story that goes from like left to right. You know, so like, so just to read the story from left to right. And you see uh, the, the text that says, see depression. So what do you, what do you see? I know you can't read the text very well, but what do you see on these images? Vacant look. So on the left, there's um, again a, a younger woman who's uh, pictured, and like the camera angle is a little bit. I can't tell what they did with the camera because, like, but anyway, camera's a little bit off, and these are a little off kilter. She's looking to the side, um, but there's this like green box around. It's a frame around her face. We're not told her name, but we're told what we should see, which is to see depression. And under that, in, these, in the white text, which you can't see very well, I can hardly see it on my screen either, it says, my sadness just won't go away. I don't have the energy to go out with friends. Um, my constant worry is affecting my job. Like, these, are, these are things that are like, you know, not things that we want to feel, but they're pretty common things to feel. 
but we're specifically asked to see these questions as depression. And then in the middle, there's to see the data, and there's like a very kind of very simplistic, you know, description of what the pharmaceutical company wants you to see and wants you to think about this particular medication's effects. And then on the right, what do you what do you see there? We're being asked to see certain things. Is she arm wrestling? She's arm wrestling. Yeah, I'm not sure what's going on arm wrestling. That's right. She's got a very different expression. I've never laughed when I was arm wrestling. Yeah, she probably doesn't make for effective arm wrestling to laugh while you're arm wrestling. Yeah, she, uh, she's surrounded by people. The camera angle is no longer like at an off-kilter. You know, it's like the colors are more vibrant. Um, it's to see a difference. And this, I think, is a classic way that we, the psychiatrists, tend to talk about things, which is like having, having said that mental health problems are something that are yours alone or inside you, they're now like defined by a set of experiences or symptoms that are kind of, can be sort of put apart from the self, which I think can sometimes be a really good thing because it helps us to like be able not to feel ashamed of how we're feeling and it helps to be able to see things as, as something that we can work on together. But those symptoms get kind of taken out from the self and, and made the object of like manipulation or change and a medication is supposed to then change those symptoms. That's what I call a, a dualism of self and symptoms. Is this a real medication? This is real medication, yeah. yeah. Because it looks yeah. like an SNL commercial. <laughs> it is real medication. And it's a, it's a medication that some of you may be taking and that, that really it can be very helpful for depression and anxiety and, and other things. Still very in, in wide use. So my, I'm not trying to critique or promote medications. It's not a you know, drug talk. But, I'm, uh, but it's more like, how, what are we being asked to see in the way that these, the stories are being told? And the next thing that can happen then is that people can say, well, now that symptoms are like, now that we have a set of symptoms that are just these things, then these symptoms then like reside in the brain or they reside in the body. And then you get to uh, this, the thought that I think that we're just constantly like, getting drawn into in our culture which is a dualism of body and mind, or body and soul. It's most associated with this guy on the left here, Rene Descartes, who's a philosopher who lived from 1596 to 1650. Um, and you probably know Descartes is most famous for saying, I think therefore I am. Yeah, basically said, like, how can I deny everything? How can I, how can I doubt everything? And the one thing that I cannot doubt is my existence as a thinking thing. I think, therefore, I am. And so, therefore, I'm a, a substance that's like, constituted entirely by thinking. And even if my body didn't exist, I still would because I can think. I'm, I'm like badly misquoting Descartes, but that's basically what he said. So, and the thing to know about Descartes is that like, he, he did that in part because he really wanted to be able to see the body as a machine. So, Descartes is in part known for not only saying that the mind is separate from the body, but that the body is a machine. And I think that even like psychiatrists who are very kind of um, like to think of mental illness as like only a brain problem can sometimes be thinking a lot like Descartes. Because the question is like, if, if the mind is separate from the body, then like where does, where, where do mental health problems reside? Um, you can say that they reside not in the body and only in the mind or soul. And that's where you get a lot of problems in the Christian world where like, Christians are like, oh, it's just a spiritual problem or it's just a problem of thinking, it's not a bodily problem. That's not true, because that, that participates in this like splitting off of mind and body. Or you can kind of go the other direction and say, well, like the central problem is just a problem of the, of the body that's broken. It doesn't involve like 
the mind or soul so much, it's, it's a problem with the body. And this, I think, is also a way that we like participate in splitting things apart and in splitting the mind off from the body. And I want to argue that, that the Christian story calls us to a different vision. Um, and this, this can all lead to what uh, Joseph Davis calls, uh, he has a term that he uses called the neurobiological imaginary. That we tend to locate the locus of the problem in the brain or the body. And among, sorry, this is among his like, interview respondents. Like he says that those that tended to locate the locus of the problem in the brain and body also thought that these unwanted mental states are not really about anything specific. They're just like, they're just things that happen in the body. Um, the helpful thing was that people could feel then less ashamed of what they were thinking and feeling because it's like, well, it's not, it's not me, it's something that's happening in my body. There was less self-criticism, so that's arguably a good thing. There was more willingness to use medication and people who spoke this way. People who thought differently also would use medication some, but, this, but in this case, it was like, if a medication works, that proves that it's a bodily problem and not something else. Um, and there was a focus on, on coming to a clinician to get things fixed. Like, I need a prescription because I need to fix this problem. And the goal often was, like, just trying to just, like, restore function. Like, I just need to get back to being able to take exams or work, you know, work at my job or, you know, do my internship. Right? Like, just try to get back to demands of ordinary life. I want to come back to this a little bit because, like, what are the pros and cons of thinking this way about our experience? Um, but just to complete the idea of the, the, what happens when the body is seen as a machine, it then leads to basically the idea of like a, an effective mental health treatment is whatever works to reduce the symptoms that have been specified. So if, um, if you define uh, major depressive disorder as two weeks or more of uh, feelings of sadness or loss of interest in pleasurable activities and excessive uh, sleep or decreasing uh, decrease in it, or too little sleep, or you know, and the other things that we that we uh, define depression as, then anything that helps reduce those symptoms is seen as an effective treatment. Whether it's a medication, whether it's a course of psychotherapy, whether it's um, TMS, whether it's ECT, there's lots of things that can be seen as effective. And of course, then anything that can be then like applied can be bought and sold. So you get like a, a kind of mental health care system that like understands itself as applying particular techniques. To particular kinds of experience and ultimately like buying and selling it so like you know charging for units of time or medications or other things and i think that there's some really good things i think that, that this way of thinking about mental health i'm a psychiatrist at duke I, I am practicing within this world all the time i think there's really beautiful things that it's brought us and i think it can be limited in some way so in the next few minutes i just want to kind of turn from that uh, comment about modern mental health care to think about what do Christians want to affirm about what it means to be human and then how might that affect the way that we think about the nature of mental health problems and the way that we think about medication and other kinds of treatments. So this is, um, this is none of this is really specific to mental health care, but it's things that I think are the most important things. So of all the things I say, uh, well, I've said a few things I like, don't give up and get help, and I'll say those again. But here are the things that I think are the most important things that I'll say tonight. Which is that the deepest truth of who we are as humans is not that we're broken and fixing, but that we are deeply and fully known and loved by God. That's, that's the core of who we are. Nothing else is more true about us than that. 
And Psalm 139, um, you know, the Lord, uh, you know, you, you hem me in behind and before. Um, your thoughts are, are, are with me. There's, there's this deep sense of, like, of um, you search me and know me. You know my inward parts. There's this deep sense in which we are known and loved by God. That's the, the central truth of who we are. And I'm, I'm drawn to the way that a Catholic philosopher, Joseph Pieper, uh, talked about Genesis 131, when God said, uh, it says, God, and God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Um, this philosopher, Joseph Pieper, meditates on that and says, like, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean for God to see God's creation as good? He says, in this case, it's, it's for God to, to look on the creation, to look on us with, with approval. Not approval for like everything about us or you know everything that we might do, but approval for the basic truth of our existence and of the and of the world's existence. The creation, all this creation around us is is good. He says, for God to say the creation is good, it's, it's to look at us and to say it's good that you exist. It's good that you're in this world. And that to me is like the core of. That's a place to start with, with any question of mental health, to start that it's good that we exist. It's, it's good that we're in this world. We start not from a position of being alone in the world or being separated from others, but being beloved. We start from that place of belovedness, that God knows us and loves us um, more than anything else. A second truth is that we are living creatures of earth. So Genesis says that we are dust. And we come from the dust. We are bodies of earth. And so I take that to be, just that affirmation means that when we struggle, when we're depressed or when we're anxious or when we have OCD or when we have bipolar disorder or anything else, like that happens to creatures of dust. Like it happens in our bodies. And so things that involve tending our bodies and caring for our bodies, like, like sleep and eating and exercise and spending time with other people, but also like medication. These are ways of caring for our bodies, tending to our bodies. And we're creatures of dust. We're, we're creatures. So nothing that happens in our lives in this life happens completely apart from our bodies. We live as bodies. And though we're not like isolated bodies, um, we're certainly not machines. We're, we're living creatures. We're not like machines, but we're we're, we're living creatures that need to be tended and nourished and cultivated, not like mass-produced. Or you know, and and I, I tend to resist like the kind of language that we often use for ourselves when we talk about being burnt out. Like that's like an image that you use for like a rocket or an, a motor, but not an image that you use for a living being. We talk about even even the word stress, which I do use all the time, but that comes from the language of physics of like you know something that can bend but not to the breaking point. Like there's like and, and the language of especially of resilience, like it did like you know something like getting bent and then bending back to where it was before. Like these are images that come from the language of like industry and mechanics and machines, not the language of like what does it mean to tend creatures? But we're creatures. And we're creatures of earth who love and grow and who find ourselves in relationship. Um, God has made us that we're creatures of earth who are constantly, from the very moment of our beginning, 
are intimately bound to other creatures, initially, of course, our mothers, and then those who know us and love us uh, the most and who care for us from the moment of birth and who then continue to, to, to nurture us and continue to allow ourselves to be known in them. Like, we literally discover who we are. We find ourselves in and through the relationships that we are together. And that never, that never ends, you know? Like, you can be in your, you can be two or you can be 82. And, and this idea of, like, finding ourselves in relationship is really important. And so that's where I think just that, it leads us to a kind of vision of, like, needing to think in a holistic way about our experience when we struggle. So this is maybe a little more complex image than some you've seen before. So, um, like, can you see here uh, a, a younger, a face of a younger woman kind of looking away here? See, can you see that? Can you see a face of what uh, looks maybe like an older woman who's kind of looking more toward the left? How many of you can see, and this is like a serious question, because like, I cannot do this, but how many of you can see both of these women at the same time? I'm amazed by that. So some people can see, like, you can see both at the same time. I can't do it. My brain doesn't look like that. I either see the younger woman or I see the older woman. I can see both. I can like toggle back and forth, but I can't see both at the same time. Like, I'm constantly like, my brain's like making one of the figure in the ground. Some of you are just like, have better brains than I do. This is an analogy for, I think, two different ways of thinking about and seeing mental health challenges, especially challenges like, like depression and anxiety, but other things too, is I think you can have two different ways of understanding your experience. One would be what I consider an inside-out model of mental health problems, which is that idea of something is like starting on the inside of us, either in our genes or in our brains or in our brain circuits or in our, you know, uh, neuroendocrine system, and then it shows up on the outside in the world of relationships and our community and our culture and um, you know, how, we, how we live in the world. That's one way of thinking about like, how we might understand mental health problems. That's, I think, the one that the machine metaphor like, you know, leads us to. Or we can think of mental health problems in an, in an outside-in framework that maybe, maybe things start out as problems of culture like living in a really broken culture. Maybe things start out as um, problems related to what does it mean to live in a COVID world where not only is there incredible isolation of people from others, but every, every um, sinful uh, social injustice and disparity has been worsened and made more evident in the context of COVID um, with regard to vastly disproportionate rates of death and illness among uh, racial and ethnic minorities, and among those who are in, um, especially early in the pandemic, are in you know, critical service positions, and who don't have access to stable housing. Like the way in which the pandemic has like served as a, an exposure and multiplier of every form of injustice. To be anxious or depressed in this world, maybe like just reflecting that we live in a world that's incredibly stressed and and disordered right now, on a social level, on a cultural level. And, and that would be, and then, and then what happens on the inside is that like we're responding to that. So an outside-in model would say that our, our experience isn't like inside problems that show up in the world of relationship and community and culture. Maybe sometimes we're experiencing problems of relationship and community and culture 
but then start on the outside and they show up on the inside. And you can see kind of either way. And sometimes I think it's, it's helpful to kind of think through, like, how would I make sense of this as an outside-in problem? How would I make sense of this as an inside-out problem? And sometimes one fits better than the other. So in, in, as a psychiatrist, I'd say, you know, there's certain kinds of mental health problems like acute psychosis and schizophrenia or acute mania or other things that I think do fit a kind of inside-out model pretty well in terms of something's happening on the inside, it then shows up on the outside. But there's other things, like a lot of what the veterans that I treat are going through that really are, they start on the outside. They're not primarily problems of the inside. The third thing I want to affirm is that we are wayfarers on a, on a journey. The scripture is constantly using this image of like of the human being as, as someone who's on a journey from God to God. Now, you know, Hebrews uh, 12, you know, uh, uh, let us run with endurance the race is set out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the one who goes before us, the perfecter of our faith. And so as Christians, we can think of ourselves as, as, as from God, our creator, on a journey in this life to God, who is our source, who is our, our end and our goal and our joy. And our lives are that of a pilgrim or of a wayfarer. And we actually walk alongside each other as those who are on a journey. And I find this to be a really helpful way to think because it leads to the central question, like whatever I'm going through right now, um, what's needed right now for the journey? And that, that leads to a remarkably kind of open set of questions. What's, what's needed might be a medication. It often is a medication. Um, what's needed might be a course of electroconvulsive therapy or TMS. It might be a hospitalization. It might be a course of CBT or structured psychotherapy. It also might be to get out of an abusive relationship. It might be to uh, drop a class. It might be to um, lean in more into a particular community, or it might be to lean out of a particular community, depending on what kind of community that is. It might be to have uh, access to food. You know, there's lots of things that it might mean, but having that as the, as the first question, what's needed right now for the journey can allow for kind of open-endedness of like, what does it mean for us to support each other? And then I think you know, the last thing I would say in terms of like a principle is that often in in our lives, we, we tend to focus on control. Like we want to be in control. And this is especially the case when we live with mental health challenges. And to be clear, control is a really good thing. It's really important. So I work with trauma survivors a lot at the VA, and I certainly work a lot with students who are trauma survivors. And, and uh, to, if when you survive trauma, like having control over your over your circumstances, over your safety, over um, what happens with your body, that's really important and, and really good. So control is a good. But if our entire lives are given to like maintaining control over ourselves, or especially over others, or over the situation that we're part of, or over our community, then uh, we end up like living lives that are dedicated to just maintaining control. And we also end up like basically worshiping whatever or whomever it is that we perceive has put us in that place of control. So if you think of a particular political leader as like put you in a place of control, you're going to clamp down on trying to keep that political leader in power. And we see that now in our world. If you think that um, if you think that a particular like you know way of thinking or or, or uh, you know uh, religious leader is like put you in a place of control, you're going to continue to like have a lot of faith in that person or that way of thinking. 
And I think that, um, that one way to, to think about this is like, is like, maybe as Christians, we're not drawn only to control. We are, I think, allowed to pursue control. But we're ultimately drawn not to control, but to love and to wonder and to praise and to a kind of a, like just awe in the creation that God has given us. So I always try to ask myself, like when I'm working as a psychiatrist or when I'm teaching in a, in a seminary context, like am I being drawn in love toward God? and toward others, and toward the people in front of me whom God has given to me to love and, and to love for myself? Am I becoming a deeper lover in the work that I'm doing? Or am I like just trying to just kind of keep things tamped down and under control? And I think that if we don't find that in our engagement with mental health care, if we don't find that we're like able to kind of grow and expand in love, then I think that might be a sign there's something that's a little bit off. So what is it that we need to be doing? This leads to two ways of seeing. So one, one way that we've talked about is that maybe mental health problems are identity-defining problems that are in the individual, caused by dysfunction in the body or mind. And this would be a kind of machine metaphor way of seeing mental health problems. Maybe instead, we might think about mental health problems as challenges faced by wayfarers. Body, relational, loved, creatures of Earth who are on a journey God. So then this might lead us from thinking only about individuals to thinking about relationships and community. It leads us from like splitting off mind from body to thinking about like us as embodied souls on the way to God. Like ultimately the Christian vision is not of like mind-body splitting and dualism, but of a holistic unity of, of body and soul. And it leads us from the idea of mental health treatment is a matter of fixing to what does it mean to attend fellow travelers and wayfarers. So I just want to end very practically. A few things to do and to remember when you're struggling. The first thing I would say is to remember that you are known and loved and it is okay not to be okay. And I know I know at Duke we just finished exams and it feels like this is an especially important time the year to remember that, you know, for anybody on a you know, university semester schedule. Um, and that that's the deepest truth. The second thing that I say is that uh, if you're struggling, if we're struggling, to seek counsel and get help. And uh, don't leave tonight unless you have a, a, a sense of how you might do that uh, in terms of like, where to turn. That's really important. And, and I think one of the most important things that I could say. Third, and this is a term that, uh, I put a picture of Wake here, but it's, this is a term that originated at, at, uh, at Duke a few years ago, uh, and I don't know if it applies to Wake or not, is, uh, you guys have heard this term, effortless perfection, this is something that's heard of. So this, this was something that, as far as I know, was, maybe it came from someone else, but it was it, uh, uh, an undergraduate woman at Duke about 15 or so years ago said that, um, Women at Duke are expected to live by this life of effortless perfection, by which they, by which what they, what she meant was, like to basically, like always be kind of like looking pretty good and on top of things with classes and definitely on top of things with like social commitments and connected and present in conversation and all that and and not to actually look like you're trying very hard to do it. 
And her point was, like, that is completely exhausting. It's unsustainable. It leads to incredibly unhealthy ways of thinking and acting. And yet that's a social norm. Like, I think especially women, but also men expect of ourselves. And that's something to be refused. You know, what does it mean to refuse that in view of, like, a deeper sense that, like, we're, we're like, creatures who are just trying to make it in the world and loved and trying our best to find our way. Um, the fourth would be to pay attention to your body. Again, we're creatures of dust, creatures of earth. And so, like, what does it mean to, again, not to, like, recharge, like, these, like, images of the rocket or the machine, or refuel, but to, but to give space for nurture and for growth and for rest. These are really important things. And then, just to repeat, ask as a central question, like, what's needed right now for the journey? And if what's needed right now is, like, medication, that's exactly the place to go first, you know? And then worry about the other stuff later, you know? And, and certainly, if, if, if uh, there's anything if, about your life, the life of a loved one, that, that there's any concern about safety or about, like, am I gonna make it? The first thing to do is to get the kind of help that you need. For, to, that's what's needed. But this can be a very open-ended question. Last, I would just say, like, what does it mean to walk with each other? So since we're in a church, uh, and this is a church, and not all of you, I don't presume that everyone in this room is Christian, or certainly part of Salem Presbyterian, but some of you are. Um, what can communities do? So one thing would be, I said four helpful rules, but this is like six things, sorry. <laughs> it's like cultivate a culture where it's okay not to be okay. Um, don't shame. I didn't, I mentioned shame tonight, didn't talk about it much, but we could talk about that in the, in the time to come. Um, Foster belonging and not just inclusion. I have a friend and mentor, John Swinton, who talks about the distinction between belonging and inclusion. He says, like, to be included, you basically just have to not be turned away. Like, somebody has to be not standing at the door saying you can't come in. That's, that's what it means to be included. So all of you tonight are included. Congratulations in this gathering. But he says, belonging is a higher standard. That to belong, you need to be missed. Somebody needs to say, um, like, we missed you when you weren't there. Like we need you and we're part of you. So what does it mean for communities to be places of belonging and not just inclusion? Um, to talk about mental health problems. So the fact that you guys are doing this tonight is I'm so honored to be part of this. I think, uh, but just to continue to talk about like, that it's okay to struggle and to talk specifically about like um, what it means to be depressed or to be anxious or to to live with other kinds of mental health challenges. That can be really helpful to do in community. Um, to build relationships with mental health clinicians. I know that you guys do this already because I've been in conversation with, uh, with, with your church over the years, um, but I think that can be really important. And then I think look out for each other and encourage each other to get help. I think that's so deeply important because when you're in the middle of like a crisis, like you can't necessarily see the right thing to do or know the right thing to do. And, and the way forward is not always clear. So having somebody come alongside you and say, it's time to go to a therapist like now, or it's time to go to the ER now, or it's time to think about a medication now. That can be really life-saving life and life-changing. And, uh, and with that, that's more than 30 minutes, but that's what I brought in, and I would love to just be in conversation from here and to take any questions. And